This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. We'll compete with confidence. We'll cooperate wherever we can. We'll contest where we must. That's the new China strategy as outlined by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken earlier this year. But just exactly how countries should deal with China, including working with it when the times call for it, is perhaps the thorniest question in international relations today, at least in the West. Scott Moore gives his framework on the U.S. and China in China's next act, how sustainability and technology are reshaping China's rise and the world's future, published by early this year by Oxford University Press. Referring to issues like public health, AI, and biotechnology, Scott gives his views on how the U.S. should approach China, whether it's cooperation, competition, or conflict. Scott Moore is Director of China Programs and Strategic Initiatives and the Office of the Provost, as well as a lecturer in political science at the University of Pennsylvania. Moore was previously a young professional with the World Bank Group and served as Environment, Science, Technology, and Health Officer for China at the U.S. Department of State. He is also the author of Subnational Hydropolitics, Conflict, Cooperation, and Institution Building in Shared River Basins. Today, Scott and I talk about the U.S.-China relationship, how it's changed, and how U.S.-China competition could, under the right circumstances, still lead to global progress. So, Scott, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Review Books podcast. You know, China is clearly a hot topic at the moment. Um everyone's talking about China, everyone's giving opinions on China, everyone's giving opinions on what the U.S. should do about China. But what do you think is missing in our conversation about China, about relations with China that pushed you to write this book? Well, Nicholas, thanks so much for uh, the invitation to, to join you and, and uh, talk a little bit about uh, what I learned, uh, what I came to believe, and uh, and maybe a couple questions that I still have uh, from researching and writing uh, China's Next Act. Um, it may be helpful to just sort of say a little bit about why I wrote the book um, in the first place uh, in answer to your question. Um, and it really starts with a, a little bit of, uh, of biography that you, um, that you mentioned, which is uh, that I had the opportunity to serve uh, through a, an academic fellowship as uh, the Environment, Science, Technology, and Health Officer for China at the at the U.S. Uh, Department of State, um, 
And uh, I have to say, I, uh, uh, I had that opportunity shortly after um, coming out of uh, graduate school and doing a, a, a postdoctoral research fellowship, uh, which, you know, in academia, uh, everything is sort of around hyper-specialization, especially um, in graduate school. And um, Kind of showing up at the at the State Department and being told, "Okay, your uh, your job is to cover all the environmental, science, technology, and or health issues uh, related to China," uh, seemed to be to be uh, somewhere between uh, laughable and and maybe downright dangerous. Um, but as I got into that uh, that set of responsibilities, um, I really came to think of them as pretty fundamental. Uh, not just to the U.S.-China relationship, but to China's role in the world uh, more generally. And this was a period I was there um, around the time of the Paris uh, uh, Climate Change Agreement. And so a lot of the work um, was on uh, responses to shared global challenges or um, in sort of more academic terms, they're often referred to as global public goods, um, things like public health or, or uh, pandemic prevention um, or uh, uh, trying to address climate change or, or protecting um, the stability of the world's uh, climate. Uh, and interestingly, this may be something we, we come back to, Nicholas, but um, at the time, in addition to uh, a lot of work on climate change uh, in the context of the Paris Agreement, we were uh, just coming off of what was at the time widely seen as a, a very successful example of U.S.-China cooperation um, in response to a very serious uh, Ebola outbreak in West Africa um, that now has been largely forgotten, um, but at the time was a very, very serious uh, uh, infectious disease emergency um, and caused a lot of alarm around the world, um, but witnessed some really striking scenes of U.S.-China cooperation, um, including having uh, People's Liberation Army units unloading supplies from U.S. Air Force transports uh, in countries like Sierra Leone. Um, pretty hard to imagine now, um, but it happened. Um, and that's really why uh, I, I wrote the book, because uh, I, I did have the opportunity to see up close um, that there was, uh, in fact, in a, in a galaxy far, far away a long, long time ago, um, a, a time and a place when the United States and China were capable uh, of doing things jointly. Uh, that benefited not just both countries, but uh, but really the the world at large, um, and that really uh, planted a seed in my mind um, that when we think about uh, again not just U.S. China relations, um, which tends to to dominate the discussion, but really China's role in the world and its relationship with most major countries around the world, um, the the focus of that is increasingly China's role in addressing these shared global challenges. Um, and I think uh, the best examples of that that we've seen are in the areas of public health and climate change and the environment, um, all of which I talk about in the book. But going forward, um, we're going to see a China play a similar role with respect to uh, setting rules of the road or regulating emerging technologies like artificial intelligence, um, and uh, advanced forms of biotechnology, synthetic biology, gene editing, uh, et cetera. And I think what this all kind of boils down to um, is that uh, China is uh, indispensable in addressing all of these shared global challenges, whether it's sort of more in the realm of sustainability um, or more in the realm of, uh, of technology. And yet, as you pointed out in your introduction, even as China has become more and more uh, essential and indispensable to addressing all of these shared challenges, 
relationships between China and other countries have deteriorated. Um, and I think at least from a, a, a foreign or a Western perspective, um, working with uh, Chinese entities, especially the Chinese government and uh, the state, um, has become much more problematic um, for uh, a whole host of economic, geopolitical, uh, and even moral and ethical reasons. Um, and so it's that kind of dilemma uh, or that paradox that I really try to get at in the book, um, exactly why this uh vision that many, uh, including myself, had uh, less than a decade ago for the United States and China being able to work together to address shared challenges failed, um, and how we can uh, lay the groundwork for uh, a more constructive future going forward. Right, because we tend to think of opinions about China, you know, as a battle between hawks and doves. Um, with, I think, as, as you know, in your book, you know, the with with the hawks seeming like they've, they've, um, one is the wrong, perhaps the wrong, the wrong, um, the wrong word, but the Hawks are more convinced that they were right all along. Um, but I mean, it seems like there's a, at least you try, as you try to put forward in your book, there, there is there kind of a better way to think about the U.S. and China? So it's not, so, so it's not just we have to cooperate in all circumstances, which is a very extreme characterization of, of the dovish view, uh, or compete in all circumstances, which is the hawkish view. Is, is there kind of a better way to think about that that balance between between um, cooperation and competition? Uh, well, certainly that's the argument I make in the book, uh, Nicholas. And I would say there are three uh, three kind of points there. Um, one, and I, I do talk a little bit in the book about the sort of hawks versus dove divide, which. Um, as you uh, you uh, kind of alluded to, um, historically, that's been the, the major divide in terms of debate um, in the West and particularly in the U.S. over how we should sort of deal with uh, China, especially from a diplomatic uh, perspective. And the, the main split was between uh, people who favored uh, more, uh, you know, to use another uh, uh, sort of common, common phrase, engagement, um, you know, whether we should sort of uh, be more uh, more open to uh, uh, to working with uh, the Chinese government and the Chinese state on a whole range of uh, uh, of issues versus those who favored uh, a more aggressive uh, stance toward uh, toward China that uh, had was sort of much more centered on uh, national security and and sort of bolstering um, again particularly American national security uh, relative to uh, uh, to that of uh, of China. Um, and this had been a really long-running debate that had, uh, uh, you know, sort of seen uh, both sides have the upper hand at times. Um, but over the last decade or so, um, we've seen two big shifts in that hawks versus doves divide. Um, one is that the hawks appear to have won, um, uh, and uh, in a more kind of durable way than uh, than they have in the past. And two, that that kind of more hawkish perspective is becoming much more widespread across the West than it ever was in the past. Um, the kind of hawkish view on China had been a feature of U.S. policy. Um, there had been, you know, some analogs to it in places like Japan. Uh, but the fact that it's now spreading to countries like Germany um, is a really substantial change. Um, and I think kind of uh, should, uh, should lead us to believe that there are going to be much more uh, difficult relationships between China and a whole host um, of of countries, not just the United States and Japan, and you know countries that that have always had quite problematic 
um, and complex, uh, uh, complex uh, sort of relations with China. The problem with that, um, the sort of uh, you know apparent win or victory of the hawkish position, uh, is that uh, again China is really indispensable. Um, with respect to cha- to addressing these shared global challenges that we all have. And I actually opened the book by saying, you know, I think if we learn one thing from the COVID-19 pandemic, um, it's that the world is bound together by these shared challenges, you know, for better or worse. Uh, and at the center of those challenges stands China. Uh, I think that's a uh, something that, you know, remarkably, be- uh, as the COVID-19 pandemic became so global, um, you know, China's sort of uh, role in the, in the pandemic uh, kind of has become obscured. Um, but it's a great example of how all countries and societies are uh, in, largely in the same boat when it comes to these ecological uh, shared challenges, and uh, particularly public health and the environment, and also uh, in emerging technologies. Um, so that's sort of point one that this sort of hawks versus doves divide um, and in particular, the the kind of ascendancy of the hawkish perspective doesn't really account for that reality um, that, you know, whatever else uh, may be going on uh, in terms of, of relations with China, um, this the cold hard fact remains that very little progress on shared global challenges can be made um, without it. Um, that does get to uh, a second point, which is uh, I devote a lot of the book to and is, is sort of a key uh, theme that runs uh, throughout the book, um, which is that we can actually achieve a lot more uh, through competition um, than uh, 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 than we often think. And in some cases, competition can actually be better uh, than cooperation um, to uh, produce uh, gains for the planet and to address shared global challenges. And let me just say a few more words about that uh, kind of headline statement. Um, one thing uh, I, that's a little bit of a bugbear of mine is how often in the context of China, we talk about um, competition versus cooperation without really defining um, what that means. And, and one of the things I try to do early in the book is propose uh, a definition you know, for, for these, these words that we often use. Um, and I think a key kind of uh, component of both is that um, when we talk about cooperation, um, we both expect interaction or exchange to produce gains for both sides that are fairly equitable so that not only can both sides kind of gain, but they gain more or less um, uh, equally. And also um, that there's sort of a interaction and exchange and communication like is good for its own sake. When we talk about competition, on the other hand, you can still have gains for both sides. But the aim of interacting or trading or communicating is to have one side gain more than the other. I think that's really what we mean when we talk about competition in a China context. Um, and I think those gains can be economic. Um, they can be designed to ensure that you know U.S. firms gain a, a greater share uh, of the market for a new technology, for example, even if um, you know, those firms are also exporting to China and potentially uh, transferring some technology to, to Chinese partners um, or gaining geopolitically. Um, and I think it's in that context um, that this idea of we can we can actually make some shared progress uh, on share on uh, 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 global challenges through competition as well as through cooperation comes into play. And the best example 
one I devote a fair amount of attention to in the book is uh, clean energy development. Uh, and to make uh, just sort of a you know quite a quite a long story uh, a little bit shorter, uh, if we're going to solve the climate crisis, if we're really going to avert uh, catastrophic climate change, we're going to need um, a new generation of of clean energy technology, um, and that new generation of technology is going to require some substantial public investment uh, in basic research and development. Um, And that public uh, uh, finance or that public investment, um, for better or worse, historically speaking, has often been driven by uh, this kind of idea of geopolitical or military or security competition. We definitely saw that during the Cold War when uh, U.S. federal investment in basic science uh, was really jump-started by uh, uh, the uh, kind of competition um, and rivalry with the Soviet Union. Um, And we've seen that a lot of the major investments that the U.S. has made um, in uh, uh, clean energy technology um, have, have also had some link to China. The best example, I think, is the Inflation Reduction Act, um, really the only significant piece of, of climate legislation that the U.S. Uh, uh, has, uh, has passed to date. Uh, and in his message to Congress, uh, urging that they pass the bill, President Biden specifically referred uh, to the potential of the bill or the promise of the bill to help America compete more effectively with China. Um, so again, you see this justification um, for uh, uh, for investment in clean energy technology really being rooted in, in you know in uh, in more effective competition with uh, with China. I'd also uh, point out that although the evidence isn't as clear, there's there is some uh, uh, some strong indication that the same that there's a similar dynamic on the Chinese side, um, which is that uh, policy with respect to clean energy development and investment uh, is driven at least in part. Uh, by the desire to kind of strengthen China's competitive position economically uh, and to some degree uh, from a security perspective as well uh, relative to the U.S. and other, uh, other foreign countries. So this idea of kind of competition um, uh, actually runs pretty deeply uh, throughout uh, a lot of climate and energy uh, uh, sort of policy action. Um, and that kind of leads to the third point that I would make, um, which is not only can uh, and this is something that I, I, I argue pretty strongly in the book, um, uh, that not only can uh, competition be good um, for the planet in some ways, like clean energy development, um, but actually we may have kind of conventional wisdom uh, almost backwards when it comes to China, sustainability, and technology. Um, let me explain a little bit what I mean uh, about that kind of conventional wisdom, uh, having it backwards. Typically, when we talk about uh, issues like climate change and China, um, it's the kind of intuitive thinking, the unstated um, kind of assumption um, there is that if we want to tackle climate change, make progress on on reducing emissions, we have to have cooperation um, between uh, major emitters, the U.S., China, uh, et cetera. Whereas if we talk about technology, especially emerging technologies or advanced technologies like artificial intelligence, that's totally fair game for competition, um, for rivalry uh, between uh, the U.S. and Chinese states, between U.S. and Chinese companies, universities, researchers, etc. 
I argue that that we have that um, that kind of intuition uh, more or less backwards. Um, it's true, and I, I already sort of mentioned the example of clean energy development, but I go through a couple of other um, global challenges or global public good issues um, in the book. And one of the things that's really striking is virtually, like historically speaking, uh, international action on these issues has always taken place against the backdrop of, of geopolitical competition. Um, there's never been or almost never been um, a sharp kind of division between uh, countries competing economically, geopolitically, ideologically, um, and taking some steps to try to address shared global challenges. So there's much less of a contradiction in terms between tackling shared global challenges and competing um, than we often think. But on the other hand, when you sort of come to the emerging technology side of the equation, failing to have um, high-level intergovernmental uh, dialogue on just sort of setting some fundamental ground rules for the development of these really, really disruptive new technologies um, is, is extremely dangerous. Um, and, you know, I go through several examples in the book, but one that is really, um, I think, uh, striking and, and poignant um, is the prospect that uh, gene editing, um, which is really a very um, democratic technology and that it's pretty easy to, uh, to employ, uh, doesn't require a huge amount of investment or training to use, um, that that could lead to new forms of uh, bioterrorism or uh, at a minimum, uh, just increased biosafety risks from uh, research that's being sort of improperly uh, conducted uh, uh, in, uh, you know, using proper safety protocols and things like that. Um, that's a really, really frightening prospect um, and something that is fundamentally in the interest of all governments, including China's, uh, to try to work with other governments uh, to prevent. So I think um, actually what we kind of, what that leads me to, to, to argue is that uh, competition can actually be good. Um, for public goods and for addressing shared global challenges, but it could be uh, almost fatal when it comes to uh, regulating emerging technologies. Right, and and that's actually kind of leading into into my next question, which, as I said, like you, you know, despite the despite the the positive change that can still happen when in in areas driven by competition, um, the U.S. and China still need to cooperate. As you said, they need to cooperate on technologies like AI, on technologies like gene editing, technologies like biotech. Well, you know, biotech, but a, a lot of these kind of very new technologies where the, as you note, the ground rules haven't been set. And I guess what's the, I, I guess, you know, the, the, those who are more in favor of competition would probably say that's fine. You know, we don't need to cooperate or perhaps that the U.S. should just set the rules themselves and then just make sure everyone follows them you know, through whatever means necessary. Um, uh, but I guess, I, I guess what, I guess maybe two questions. Kind of what happens if the U.S. and China can't agree on these standards, on these rules of the road when it comes to these technologies? Like, what's the danger? And two, I guess in the short term, what's given where relationship is? What's the likelihood that they might be able to still talk about these important issues? So um, I I do make the argument in the uh, in the book that the U.S. and and its uh, 
allies and partners around the world should be investing a lot of uh, energy and, and effort and resources in setting the rules of the road, because if they don't, um, I do think uh, Beijing will will seek to fill the gap. And one kind of... Is, isn't there this fight now about kind of um, nominating directors of the new standard setting body? I forget what the name is, International Technology. ITU, yes. Um, and, and that's International uh, Telecommunications uh, Union is um, uh, is one of the bodies. It's probably the best example of an international standard setting body where um, China has, has accumulated quite a lot of influence, um, and there have been at least a couple of cases in which that influence has been uh, pretty effectively leveraged uh, to benefit Chinese firms, um, in particular uh, Huawei. And I talk about that, um, that example in the book. There's a key uh, kind of standard um, uh, uh, technology standard uh, called uh, polar coding that's um, uh, integral to 5G uh, 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 network standards that um, Chinese representatives to the ITU managed to sort of get endorsed um, as the, the um, presumptive global standard. Um, and it just so happens that, that Huawei owns most of the key uh, polar coding uh, patents. But um, so that there are lots of good examples of that. And I do make the argument that, um, you know, Beijing will will fill the gap. Uh, another kind of key theme that that runs through the book that that really uh, drives that concern um, is that China's a little bit distinctive uh, in the developing country world um, in the the resources that it has placed in becoming uh, a leader and sort of an important player, both in uh, these sort of public good areas like uh, climate change negotiations, like public health. Um, and uh, like technology, certainly there are other developing countries that play important roles. Uh, India, you know, is a great example there. Um, but China really is in a different league in the sense that uh, Beijing has invested an enormous amount of money and state capacity uh, to enable it to play uh, a really important role and be a key actor uh, in bodies like uh, the World Health Organization or the ITU. Um, and what that means for other countries like the U.S. is, again, as we sort of face a future in which these sustainability and technology challenges are going to play a bigger and bigger uh, part in, in everything, uh, in, our, our, in essentially the future of everything, that influence uh, is going to be uh, increasingly important, uh, and it is going to become a more intense competition uh, with other countries. Um, you asked, though, uh, another important question, which is around how realistic is it to expect that the U.S. and Chinese uh, governments uh, you know, are going to be able to, uh, to get anywhere uh, on these shared issues? And I would say two things. One, um, there is actually more potential than you might think um, on certain issues. And I think um, in the, the biotech space, um, when it comes to biosafety and biosecurity, that's especially uh, promising as an area for dialogue for all of the um, you know politicization and sort of mutual recrimination that occurred during the COVID nineteen pandemic um, uh, around a lot of biotech stuff. Um, developments in biotechnology are deeply concerning to Beijing for a, a number of reasons, uh, not least of which that uh, uncontrolled and unregulated uh, research in areas like gene editing um, are are deeply um, sort of uh, destabilizing um, and create major safety and security concerns. Um, and so I actually do think there's quite a lot of potential for uh, a serious uh, multilateral dialogue along those lines. 
Um, I think when it comes to climate change, there is actually also uh, underappreciated potential for uh, uh, dialogue and engagement between uh, the U.S., Chinese, uh, and other major uh, emitter governments around uh, different climate intervention techniques. Um, sometimes that's uh, referred to as geoengineering. Um, so I think there are key areas in which there's really underappreciated potential. That being said, um, once you start to get over into uh, you know the ethics of artificial intelligence and things like that, way too political, way too uh, many sort of fundamental differences to expect uh, much, much progress there. And that's where one of the key, another kind of key themes and, and recommendations that I make in the book comes into play, which is that we need to uh, find much more effective ways of working with networks of subnational and non-state uh, actors, whether it's you know, state or local governments, uh, uh, the private sector, universities, NGOs, um, both in China, uh, the U.S., and elsewhere to help address uh, these shared global challenges. And I think that's particularly important in the emerging technology space um, where uh, the technology is advancing so quickly that governments just can't keep up, you know, even when they want to. Um, and that's as true in, in Beijing as it is in Washington. Uh, and almost by default, um, universities, labs, even individual researchers kind of end up being the de facto regulators. And so it's really important if you're trying to set kind of ground rules or uh, mitigate risks uh, of, of the use of artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies, you got to find ways to work with this very diverse um, uh, set of actors uh, below the governmental level. And, and as one final related point on that, um, I think when we talk about China, um, and particularly the US and China, these are two very large, powerful, capable states. Um, and I think there's an almost automatic rush to like um, think of U.S.-China relations purely in terms of, of, of the, the intergovernmental relationship. But actually, it's much deeper um, and more complex and more multidimensional than that. Um, U.S.-China relations are the sum total, not just of diplomatic engagements, but, you know, hundreds of thousands of uh, uh, individual, you know, university relationships, corporate relationships, um, on and on down the list. Um, and I think that's an untapped uh, or almost untapped part of the relationship um, that, that can be brought to bear when it comes to um, making some, you know, some progress um, uh, on these shared global challenges. Final point I would make, though, you know, I, I don't want to uh, claim that um, that uh, any of this is a, a silver bullet or panacea. Um, and I think that even as we should shift our focus uh, and sort of thinking about sustainability and technology as, as being at the center uh, of China's role in the world, I think that should shift our focus beyond just the governmental level. Um, but ultimately, you do need government-to-government uh, -government, uh, uh, agreements and, uh, and, and ties to sort of um, ratify things and, and make uh, real, durable, meaningful progress uh, in addressing shared global challenges. So it's not that I, I think that uh, these other types of actors and relationships are a substitute for uh, intergovernmental relations. They're not, you know, an antidote to uh, uh, to the tension and rivalry that we see um, at the uh, uh, at the government to government level. But they can help, um, and they offer a lot of uh, a lot of untapped potential. 
Now, you you mentioned kind of these these subnational networks, um, and and you devote, I believe you devote a whole chapter of your book to human capital, to academic scientific cooperation between the U.S. and Chinese researchers. Um, that is. That's a network that's come under strain recently for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, official law enforcement attention on potential espionage is one. Um, just general souring of relations. The U.S. has become a lot less attractive as a destination, again, for a variety of reasons. Um, but I guess how do you see, also inversely, China itself is probably a less attractive, de- de- a less attractive destination for American researchers, too, again, for that's a variety true too. of reasons. That's true, too. Yeah. Um, and so, but like, how do you, how do you see, I, I guess, how do you, I guess, how important has this academic scientific cooperation be? It's like, how important has it been? And I guess, can you see it recovering after, after, I guess, this, the, this period of low tensions and after COVID? Um, unfortunately, I, I don't think it will uh, fully recover, at least in the in the near or medium term. Um, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. I think um, you know political tension and the the sort of fallout from the pandemic has um, uh, kind of um, well, I think it's accelerated uh, what would be a, a natural trend um, toward uh, toward less. Um, uh, uh, engagements and less uh, interaction and communication between uh, uh, Chinese researchers and their counterparts in the U.S. Uh, and elsewhere. Um, and I think the fundamental drivers of that uh, are really China's own development, and in particular, the development of its uh, scientific and sort of research uh, capacity uh, domestically and indigenously. Um, so the kind of value added, if you want to think of it that way, or the attractiveness of uh, going abroad, in particular to the United States, um, to study is less than it it, it used to be. Uh, it still exists, and I think you will continue to see um, some of the kind of most uh, talented Chinese researchers and and most uh, ambitious Chinese researchers want to train uh, in the United States uh, and you know uh, uh, do exchanges and and things like that. Um, but I think the the kind of relative uh, attraction and disparity in terms of capacity and resources between the U.S. and China has uh, has shrunk, uh, and so I think the political tensions and the uh, the pandemic and and uh, lots of other things going on in the world have accelerated. Uh, I think sort of a natural uh, transition um, that maybe uh, is a a good uh, sort of invitation to mention though one other kind of theme that I uh, I I. Uh, chart in the book, um, which is that when it, when it comes to uh, technology and particularly the cutting edge of almost every technology area, um, what we've seen is that the gap between China and other economies has shrunk considerably, um, really quite dramatically, um, but it's still there. There is still a gap. Uh, and there are, uh, I think, very good reasons to expect that gap to persist. Um, over at least the medium term, um, and I go into the you know detail in this in the book. But um, when when it comes to science, technology, and innovation, a lot of the most important factors, the things that make an economy or a society highly innovative, um, have to do with very informal. Um, 
norms and, and kind of practices that are uh, part institutional, part cultural. Um, there are things like uh, tolerance for failure, um, uh, norms around the free expression of information, uh, free exchange of ideas. And because those are such embedded, um, those are so kind of culturally and socially embedded, they're very difficult to change. Um, and I think for that reason, um, it will be difficult for uh, China as, you know, it, it kind of it, it, it currently stands uh, to match the innovative capacity of, uh, of, of foreign countries. Um, I hasten to add, though, um, that that is not that observation, that that finding um, is not a cause for complacency for those who are concerned about um, uh, the economic and, uh, and innovation uh, uh, competitiveness of the United States um, or other Western countries. Um, because one of the things that you see on virtually every comparative metric of innovation or technological development um, is that while the United States is ahead of China, um, it is often behind uh, many of its peers, uh, countries like Japan or Singapore, um, uh, on a lot of these metrics. And so uh, that observation that there is kind of an innovation gap um, is not a, a, a cause for complacency in the United States. And in fact, I think it should be a wake-up call uh, for more investment in science, technology, and innovation. Um, just a little bit less prompted by the you know, perceived uh, threat of, of China per se, and more just by the um, you know, uh, uh, somewhat lackluster uh, uh, performance relative to uh, some of our, uh, you know, what, what the U.S. often thinks of, its, of as its peer countries and economies. You know, that's a, that's a great segue to my last question. Um, you know, I, I, your, your book came out over the summer, um, and I was thinking about what, what were the, kind of the big stories that kind of deal with U.S. and China and global public goods, competition, cooperation, et cetera. Um, and I came up with three. You you're mentioned one, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, there was also the Chips and Science Act passed earlier, I think earlier this year, a couple months ago, which um, is not explicitly about China, but many, many, many people use China as a reason to push for the bill's passage. Um, there was also finally, just kind of, I was thinking through kind of other big China news stories. And while this isn't you covering your book, there was um, there's this whole delisting fight about kicking Chinese companies off of U.S. stock exchanges which may have been resolved by this accounting deal which shows that which shows that the US China and China can still talk about things um although maybe that's a different that that that's a different kind of problem but I guess how do i guess any or all of these stories the inflation reduction act the chips and science act this fight and potential resolution of 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 chinese companies you know stock how does how do these kind of fit into your framework for understanding um U.S.-China interactions. Well, I think the uh, the SEC accounting standards uh, kind of case is a good example of uh, this argument that I, I do make in the book about um, the importance of the U.S. its its partners and allies leading the push for the formulation of uh, norms and standards globally. Now, you know, my argument about that uh, is applying more to. Um, uh, uh, environmental issues, technology regulation, um, but this is nonetheless a good example where uh, the U.S. Uh, took a you know a fairly aggressive position about uh, uh, you know kind of um, uh, requiring uh, Chinese firms to comply with 
uh, uh, U.S. accounting standards, which you know are set a much higher bar for transparency uh, than uh, the uh, existing Chinese uh, Chinese equivalent, um, and and essentially prevailed um, and won. And I think that is uh, that's good. Uh, I think that's good for the United States. I think it's uh, uh, largely good for the world. Um, it you know it forces sort of. Uh, the Chinese economy and key actors within the Chinese economy to be more transparent. I don't see um, why that's bad, uh, uh, except for you know perhaps anyone who was engaging in unscrupulous business practices. Um, so I, I think that's a, a great example of, of a really sound uh, policy decision. Um, again, I think there is a lot more to be done um, in the uh, uh, in the sustainability and technological uh, arenas. Um, so I would, uh, you know, my uh, kind of uh, uh, suggestion, I guess, or, uh, uh, or, or call to U.S. policymakers would be to just invest a lot more resources um, in bodies like the ITU, um, as well as ones that, that sort of tend to more fly uh, under the radar. Um, one I- example that I, uh, I talk a little bit about in the, um, uh, in the book is the uh, Convention on Biological uh, diversity, which is a UN uh, uh, kind of, uh, it's an agree. Technically, it's an agreement, but it's supported by several bodies that that try to deal with biodiversity protection. Um, China's been very active in uh, in that space, um, and I think uh, potentially to uh, to the detriment uh, of of the global environment, uh, and certainly of um, the influence of the United States, uh, its allies and partners. So I think there are lots of organizations and areas in which uh, the U.S. should kind of bring a similar uh, a similar approach uh, approach to bear there. Um, with respect to the the Chips Act, uh, I think I would say, and and you're right that you know there it, the word China does not appear in the bill, but if you look at the statements of pretty much everybody who supported it, they talk about. Uh, the need to uh, the need to uh, equip the United States to uh, compete more effectively with China. Very similar concept to what you see with the uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I I won't uh, kind of go into great detail. Um, I you know I think the Chips Act has a lot of uh, a lot of good features. I I, I did and I did write, write a piece for the uh, on this for for Lawfare and and have another uh, piece forthcoming from uh, World Politics Review. Uh, on uh, the Chips Act, I do think it's ironic that there are certain portions, certain elements of the Chips Act um, that seem to, um, or that uh, potentially threaten to make the U.S. approach to science, technology, innovation policy look more like China's, um, which has been uh, much less successful <laughs> uh, and produced some pretty underwhelming uh, results, uh, as I as I sort of alluded to earlier. Um, and one example of that is um, when you look at China's uh, both investment and just sort of the structure of China's innovation ecosystem, it's far more centralized um, than uh, is uh, the case for the U.S. Uh, and what the, uh, the CHIPS Act does is uh, concentrate a lot more authority and resources in certain federal agencies. Um, it does a lot of other things, too, but that's one um, one aspect of the bill that I think um, could potentially crowd out um, uh, some more decentralized uh, innovation, which has been uh, really critical, I think, to uh, to U.S. innovative capacity over the last 
um, few decades. But certainly at a high level, um, this is it's good that the U.S. government is making this investment in uh, science and technology and innovation. Um, and again, it is motivated uh, primarily by China, which I think underscores one of the, the arguments that I make, uh, which is this sort of idea of, uh, uh, of competition can be it can it can be harnessed for useful ends um, as long as we sort of do that uh, responsibly and also keep in mind the ultimate goal or objective, um, which is to uh, make progress in tackling these shared global challenges. Um, and that really, I think, gets to uh, maybe the the most important, most central, and uh, uh, maybe the the kind of uh, last theme I would uh, I would emphasize, which is. Um, I think if you if you take away one thing from the book, it is this idea um, that China's role in the world really is increasingly and should be increasingly thought of mostly in terms of sustainability on one hand and technology on the other. And that's not only because China is increasingly indispensable in tackling all of these uh, issues and all of which are are you know increasingly uh, uh, becoming more and more pressing. Uh, crises to solve, but also because for China itself, for in the minds of Beijing decision makers, these issues, thinking about climate risk, thinking about uh, the implications of uh, emerging technologies, many of which are very disconcerting, they play a really important role in shaping Chinese strategy and policy writ large. China's decarbonization policy, for example, is uh, one of the most significant economic policies uh, and certainly one of the most significant technology policies that China has put forward, for example. So to the extent that we're concerned about what's going on within China and China's role in the world, we need to increasingly think uh, primarily through the lens of these shared challenges, sustainability on one hand and emerging technologies on the other. So I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Scott Moore, author of China's Next Act, How Sustainability and Technology Are Reshaping China's Rise and the World's Future. Scott, I actually have two uh, more questions for you, just to wrap things up, which are, uh, where can people find your work? And what's next for you? What's the next project? Well, thanks very much, uh, uh, Nicholas, for that uh, important important reminder. Uh, the book's available on Amazon uh, as well as through a, a number of other online uh, book uh, uh, book websites. Uh, you can also find it and purchase it on uh, the Oxford University Press website. And uh, if you're interested in learning more about uh, the book as a whole or about me, you can check out my website, which is scottmorephd.com. Uh, in terms of what's next, um, you know, there are two kind of issue areas that uh, really jumped out at me from writing the book um, as things that I think do require um, a lot more attention um, when it comes to China. Um, one of them is, is biotechnology. And I, I sort of point out in the book that um, I think just looking down the road at the next few cent at the next few decades, um, biotech is really going to be the center of a lot of uh, 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 exciting uh, developments in the commercial sphere and the health sphere, um, uh, but is also going to be uh, a major uh, concern for security, for geopolitics, for ethics. Um, and so I think that is a, a watch this space, uh, China's role in, in biotechnology. And that's something uh, I do want to focus more on. Um, the second thing 
um, that uh, that that really kind of jumped out at me um, uh, as as warranting a lot of attention is uh, the potential um, for uh, chi- uh, China, or or I guess it's more um, the importance uh, of starting to engage China on um, what. Uh, are often referred to as climate intervention techniques, uh, sometimes also called geoengineering. Um, and without going into great detail, um, I think you can basically think of um, this kind of uh, uh, suite of, of, of ideas or actions as a sort of um, break glass in case of emergency, last ditch, Hail Mary um, efforts to try to blunt some of the worst effects of climate change. Um, unfortunately, the prospect um, that someone or some country is going to try something in this, uh, you know, in this area is increasing. Um, the prospect of that is, is worrying for a lot of reasons. Uh, several of these uh, uh, proposed techniques could have uh, quite damaging environmental effects of their own. Um, but if we think about the need to kind of create some some guardrails around uh, the use of, of these technologies, um, China again is critically important. Um, uh, and but I, I don't get the sense that that many people have have thought about that in part because they don't want to. And yet uh, I think we are quickly reaching a point um, in the global climate crisis where we're going to have to take more seriously um, this risk. Um, and as with so many other uh, global issues and shared challenges, China is central and indispensable to thinking about it. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsiaReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. This podcast is on, is on all of your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us continue to interview those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for a conversation with Mansi Choksi, author of The Newlyweds, Rearranging Marriage in Modern India. But before then, Scott, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas.